And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. About the same time that America was making history by electing the first black president, the Republican National Committee made some history of its own by electing its first black chairman, Michael Steele. Michael served during a particularly tumultuous and profitable period for the Republicans. He was chairman during the 2010 elections before he was deposed by Reince Priebus. Today, he's a commentator on MSNBC. He also was a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and he returned uh, recently for a podcast in front of a live audience. Sit down, Michael Steele. For uh, Axe File Ophiles who have downloaded this podcast, you should know that we are coming to you uh, at a live podcast, except it's recorded, uh, from the City Winery in Chicago. So we have a bunch of friends here tonight. Those are the friends. And even though this is a podcast, because we have an audience, I feel like I need to explain why Michael's finger is all wrapped up. And, and he's, he has an injury on the middle finger of his left hand, and it's permanently uh, cast, as I said, in the Trump position. Bitten by a, bitten by a dog. I, I, I think I held it up too long. <laughs> No, my, my dog and I got into an argument on Sunday, and he won. So that's pretty so much So I don't want anybody out. to take offense. He's not talking to you no. with his no, fingers no, no, here. Never. Michael, uh, you, before you became a big media star, before you were a Republican power broker, uh, you were a... <laughs> See, why are you laughing at that? It's not funny. You were... Um, you had a really... Uh, challenging childhood. I mean, you, you were born at Andrews Air Force Base. Yeah, yeah. And I then was, given uh, up for adoption. I was an adopted baby, yeah. And no. do you, did you ever, do you know who your, your birth no. parents were? No, I have no, no clue. What I do know uh, about them is that they were uh, graduate students at Catholic University. Uh, and um, my mother became pregnant with me in, I think it was like her junior year. Uh, or her one of her years at at the school, and um, uh, the story as as I've been able to piece it together uh, was that through happenstance she was on her way uh, to uh, confront her pregnancy, uh, and as you, all of you know, that was a very challenging thing for women back in the 50s and for a long, long time until Roe versus Wade sort of changed the, the climate. But a long, more so for a student at pardon? Catholic University. Yeah, Catholic, yeah, being a student at Catholic mm-hmm. University, <laughs> that's a no-no. You know? um, but she, she had a different mindset, and on her way, she, she met a nun who had a conversation, uh, and she kept putting me up for adoption. I'm glad she did. Um, yeah. 
tell me um, and tell me about your uh, your your parents, your adopted parents. Well, my my mom Maybell is a phenomenal woman. She's a sharecropper's daughter. Uh, she had a fifth grade education, uh, picking uh, cotton and tobacco in in South Carolina. Uh, growing up, uh, moved to Washington, and back in those days, as you know how the sharecropper system went, worked, you would, you know, a family member would then go to the next farm or go to a new location to find work. Um, and my grandmother moved to Washington uh, to work at a laundry uh, in Washington, D.C. Once she got settled, she then called back, and uh, her oldest daughter, my mother, then came up, uh, followed by her sister, followed by her sister, and, and that's how we went. So that's how the family wound up settling in Washington. Um, my uh, mom is uh, my heart. She is my mom. Uh, and uh, it, she tells me this story. And, I, I you know, these, the things in your life kind of let you know that there's something bigger and greater than you. Um, and for those of us, of us in a faith tradition, you know, we see God's finger in, in some of these things. So she, she's going to St. Anne Infant Home because she had been determined by a doctor she could not have a child. Um, and so she finally, her, my father William and her, decided they would adopt. So they were going to the infant home and they walk into this vast room. Like, like imagine this room full of cribs. And they walk in, and the nuns are taking them in to show them the babies. And, and she says she's walking down this road, and she comes to my crib. And, and you were doing interviews. And I was doing interviews. <laughs> I was doing interviews. Close. She said, I stood up and reached out to her. And she said, in that moment, she knew, this is my child. Wow. And and your father was uh, my dad. My my my. I will say my birth father, but my stepfather, uh, adopted father rather, was uh, a good man. Um, but he had demons. He had problems. He was an alcoholic, um, and suffered from alcoholism um, most of his adult life. Um, was a womanizer. Just all around, not a good guy. But it was funny. My mom used to tell me, she said, when she needed him to behave, she would just hand me off to him. <laughs> because at that time, she knew he wouldn't drink and he wouldn't go out with his girlfriends. Uh, so what he did, what, what, he, what he would do is he would take me out with him uh, when I was a baby. Uh, and then we spent like a day out. God knows what I don't remember. But then we'd come back in and he's like, okay, here he is. Because <laughs> he knew he had plans for the evening. Uh, but he died at 36. And, and uh, when you were four years old. Yeah, four years old. Died at 36 years old uh, from cirrhosis of the liver, uh, from the alcoholism. And uh, so it was my mom and me for about five years. Uh, and that was really kind of the formation for me. This, this woman um, had such a powerful impact and, and lessons to teach me. And I would not appreciate them until I was a, a young teenager. You know, we finally sat down. Um, I have such affection for her. When I found out I was adopted, uh, it broke my heart because I was like, oh, my God. You know, this is not. And then like a little light bulb went off in my head. I said, no, this is your mother, dude. Come on. Stop it. You know, this is the woman not who just raised you but loved you and cared for you and um, uh, took, took you in. And so... 
But my mom remarried uh, a great man, uh, John, and he worked in the federal government. He was a Korean War veteran, um, and she knew his family. Did not know him, but met him through one of his sisters, because uh, back in the day, he used to go clubbing and do that, right? And this was the club, so it was a, a tobacco field out in, in Prince George's County because blacks couldn't socialize in the city. So what they did was they'd find a rundown shack, and they would go, and they would get, like, the guitar and the drums, and they'd hang out in a cornfield, like, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and people would drive from all over uh, Washington, D.C., out into Prince George's County because they couldn't go to nightclubs in town. And today that whole environment has been recreated here at the city winery. So it's just, there it is. Yeah. You went to Catholic school in I did. I Washington. went to Catholic elementary school, went to uh, St. Gabriel's uh, Elementary School, which is about a couple blocks from where I grew up, and um, was uh, profoundly impacted by, by that first-generation Catholic. My mom, great story, my mom was a uh, convert to Catholicism, and you know why one of the reasons she converted it's hysterical. So remember that little shack out in the field, the little club, 2 o'clock in the morning, everybody's partying? So one Saturday night, she's in there partying, and who does she see across the room but her pastor <laughs> with someone other than the wife? Oh. And uh, so she's like, she went up with my mom, right? She's like, what the hell are you doing here? And he just looked at her and said, do as I say, child, not as I do. <laughs> And she left the church that, that moment. She left. So then she, she joined the Catholic Church and uh, raised me Catholic and uh, went to Archbishop Carroll High School, taught by the Augustinians, uh, and then ultimately to Johns Hopkins University, Georgetown Law School. Yeah. But there was an interim there where you, you actually you were studying for the priesthood. I did. I did. Uh, I spent a few years Just with the August Typical Th- preparation for being chairman I, of a political no party. There is no better preparation. Yeah. <laughs> Look, which, which institution of all institutions on the planet has the politics down? Uh, the Catholic Church. They've been doing it like 2,000 years. Right? Hmm. They, got it, they got it worked out. But um, I, I, I went inside. Um, again, the Augustinians taught at my high school, so I had a real closeness to them. But even before that, I had a real affinity for the priest in my parish. I was, I was the kid who served 6 o'clock mass uh, every, every day because my mom um, had to be to work at 6.30. So she would pack me up, uh, get me ready for school for the day, drop me off at St. Gabriel's on her way to Sterling Laundry where she worked. So I would serve mass uh, for the nuns uh, at 6.30 uh, a.m., uh, and start my day. And so I spent a lot of time with the priests in my parish and got to know them. I spent my summers. My summer vacation was going two blocks to the rectory and working in the rectory for the summer or watching the house while the priests went on vacation. So I, I really kind of got into that and wanted to be a priest since third grade. And uh, got to high school, was influenced by the Augustinians. St. Augustine was a badass. I don't know if you know much about St. Augustine, but St. Augustine was... Is that scripture or is... That's scripture. Yeah, okay. That's scripture. You can, there's chapter 3 of the, <laughs> the, of the Old Testament. Yeah. But no, he, he, was, he was a guy of the world. He understood the world. He came from it. And so a lot of his philosophy and teaching was born out of the experience of having a child. 
uh, having an unwed uh, concubine, you know, someone, a woman he wasn't married to, um, feeling the disappointment of his mother, Monica, who <laughs> looked at him and said, what? You know, it's kind of like, what is your problem? Uh, and prayed for him. It's like, okay, Lord, you got to do something about this because I'm done. Um, and the Lord did and converted his heart and his spirit and uh, became one of the most profound doctors of the church. Uh, so I, I learned from that because I kind of rolled like that a little bit. Um, and um, I don't have the concubine, though, so it's no kids out of wedlock, yeah. so let's be clear. Um, but I'm sort saying of your wife actually, she, yep. she downloads the Acts files, so let's make so, that yeah, clear. So, we, yeah, we, we, we need to be clear because yeah. yes. I got to go home. Um, but the, the, that had such a profound impact, uh, David, on, my, on who I was. It formed and shaped my view of the world. You spent three years yeah. in the monastery. Yeah, Augustinians. Yeah, I'd show you the picture of me and my habit. It's really kind of cool. Uh, all white habit, you know, with the, the hood, the capuche, the whole thing. I'd love to see that. Yeah. But, uh, but, I'll but, show it to you. but three years and then you didn't, you didn't carry well, through. Well, you know, it's an interesting journey. A lot of people think, you know, when folks leave the seminary or they leave the monastery or religious life, it's all about sex. Well, here, here, let me break this down for you. For me, you know, what I discovered was uh, sexual relations and, and human relations uh, at the end of the day is, is a state of mind. The largest as you all know, the largest sexual organ is not between your legs, it's your brain. Uh, it is, that's, that controls a lot of that. And so for me, I, I came to understand that. Um, so it wasn't about being a celibate and living a life of celibacy. Uh, obedience, uh, so that takes care of celibacy. Obedience was uh, you know, a matter of, of um, just recognizing that you have to give yourself over to a higher authority. Well, in the Christian tradition, that's what you do when you when you give yourself over to God, or you you know are born again, or whatever your teaching and tradition may teach you or lead you. That's a part of that. So that's a discipline you have to understand that and appreciate. I'm giving myself over to this order. One of the realizations, though, came home real quick. So the day I drive up to the Augustinian order at Villanova University. Um, I drive up in my 1973 Ford Torino. I'm like psyched. This is a beautiful, great car. I love this car. All right, this is 1981. I'm driving up, and I go in, and I'm excited. All the brothers come out. Hey, welcome, welcome. Good to see you. And so the novice master comes over. He goes, give me the keys. I'm like, give me the keys? I mean, give me the keys. He's like... He liked the car, too. He liked the car, too, <laughs> as did everyone else in the community because it was now community property. So, huh. so you learn, you learn uh, discipline. You learn that, that sense of uh, appreciating authority, uh, recognizing uh, the limits of authority, but also understanding that in that relationship between you and God, what, what servant leadership should be about. And that, that, for me, is a very powerful lesson. And then there was poverty. And what I discovered about poverty was, basically, it's a bitch. <laughs> I like tailored shirts. <laughs> I like custom suits. <laughs> and that's not the order of the day in a religious community, you know. So you um, became a corporate lawyer. So I became a corporate lawyer. <laughs> there it is. So poverty drew me out. No, but what... It's calling. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's your calling. 
It's where, where God leads you. And what, what God spoke to me in that moment, uh, and I remember it very well, um, was um, I need you for something else. And, and this, this was important, and it always has been very important. Uh, it prepared me for everything else that was to come. You, even before this at, at Johns Hopkins, you were a student leader. You were a president of the student body and yep. so on. Class president and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah so were you, did you, you always feel comfortable, I mean, uh, at the front of the, front of the room? Yeah, no, it does, it didn't bother me, you know. It, it's one of those things that it, it just, it kind of happens and you find yourself sitting there and all of a sudden you're like, Okay, everybody's looking at me, so what do you do now? All right. Um, and what leadership for me, is, as I've come to define it, is it's a very precious gift that's given. And, and I'll say this with, with all honesty. Um, a lot of people pretend to leadership, but they don't really understand what it means and what it requires. So a lot of people throw the word around, uh, a lot of people use it inappropriately about others. Uh, for me, leadership is very simply defined as always being ready to lead, but never being afraid to follow. Because the sign of a true leader is someone in that moment decides to follow the better idea, to follow the stronger leader, to follow the better opportunity. And subjects or suppresses or whatever word you want to use him or herself um, to that moment. Just sort of push yourself down. It's not about you in that moment. So just to give you a basic example, if you're in a situation, you're the CEO, you're the governor, you're the president of the United States, you're the candidate, whatever situation happens to be, and you're in a room like this and people are sort of talking what you felt, what a lot of leaders fail to realize in that moment, that when David is suggesting that I think, you know, Chairman, we should do this, and this is the plan, and I think I've worked it out, and I looked at it, and I know this is a problem, but I figured out this angle, and we should go with it. How you respond in that moment, that's leadership. Because when they see you say to David, you got the con, you, you do it, I'm behind you, let's do this, this is good. Everybody on board. Let's do this. All right? That's when they're inspired by your leadership because now you're giving the responsibility and the ultimate control to someone else. And in that moment, they're no longer afraid to follow you. And they'll be willing to follow you in that critical moment when you need to be the leader. Have you had this talk with Donald Trump? (laughs) So now we'll talk about this later. This is why I have wine. (laughs) Um, no, I, I look. I my experience uh, with the current president. You and, know it. You yeah, no. It. He's been one of his great strengths is that sense of colli- uh, teamwork and collegiality yeah. and, and uh, picking people up. And it, it, it was an extraordinary experience to work and, with him. And you know, we're yeah. I mean, it's and that's obvious. I mean, that's obvious. Look. I, I admire Barack Obama on a whole number of different levels for a lot of different reasons. Um, I wish and, you'd been saying that in 2010. 
No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We'll get to that. No, we'll get to that. I actually, I actually did. We'll, we'll deal, dig, dig into that because it's one of the things that led to my getting fired. But yeah, no, I'd be happy to deal with that. Yeah. Um, but um, a lot of that for me, that, that whole idea of leadership and what it means comes from one person. And it's Maybell. It's my mother. Mm-hmm. I remember her as a young boy, uh, maybe 13, 14 years old. I was doing something at school, and my mother was with me. And when we got home, she said, I looked at you, and you know what I observed about you? I was like, what? She said, you talk too much. <laughs> you walk in the room, and you immediately start talking. What you need to do is shut up and listen. So on my desk, to this day. They don't mean now. Right, right. <laughs> But on my desk to this day, I have shut up and listen, Maybell, mm-hmm. as a consummate ri- reminder of what leadership ultimately requires, is that you shut up and listen. In the late 70s, you, you worked in a political campaign. Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah, I did. Okay, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., and as you can probably imagine, being a black Roman Catholic conservative Republican from Washington, D.C. doesn't get you far. There's not a lot of upside to that. But my friends in high school were, in many cases, the, the siblings or the kids of political figures in Washington. So I learned the art craft of this game from Marion Barry, the former mayor of Washington, uh, who became friends. Uh, he and I became friends. Of the, actually worked on his campaign for mayor in 1978 uh, as a Republican. Um, and, and it was um, because... That was the game in town, and you did it. And for me, it was to learn the art craft. And Marion, uh, along with guys like uh, David Clark, who was the, mm-hmm. the council president, uh, and um, uh, Mayor Was- Walter Washington, the first mayor of Washington, um, uh, Joe Yeldell, who was my core mentor, um, who, again, was appointed by President Johnson as one of the first members of the Washington D.C. City Council before Home Rule. Um, these guys shaped me. And the partisanship, this is... Yeah, I mean, I should ask, why were you, why are you, why were you a Republican then? We can get to why you're a Republican now later. Well, I, I, yeah, my mama raised me well. That's why I'm a Republican. <laughs> and that's because... Does she accept responsibility see, for that? Y'all, y'all immediately went to a partisan point of view, right? Uh-huh. No, you I mean, I, you look, thought I'm dogging Democrats. No, I'm not. So here's the deal. My mother, my mother to this day, God bless her, at 88 years old, and my dad at 84, are card-carrying hardcore Ds. I was just with them yesterday, installing some new carpet. <laughs> so, no, they, they, are, they are Roosevelt Democrats. But my mother raised me to think for myself. And what she said to me when I got of age was, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Be a Democrat because you want to be. Don't be a Republican because someone else is. Be a Republican. You go out and you discover the world and you find for yourself what works for you. And I was like, okay. So 1976 is the first election I can vote in. You had the incumbent president of the United States, Gerald Ford, God bless him, (laughs) 
brother had a hard job coming off of Watergate. Yeah. Then you had uh, the, the, the peanut Carter. farmer from Georgia, Jimmy Carter, who actually I was very much attracted to. I liked Jimmy, what Jimmy Carter was saying. Uh, I was a young guy. It's like Bernie Sanders in 1976, right, for young people um, in some respects. Um, but, I re- but you know who did it for me? Ronald Reagan. In 76? The 1976 convention. When he ran against Ford. When he ran against Ford. And in his concession speech on the floor, when he talks about the party, he talks about the country. And I just looked at him like, damn, okay, that's different. And I, and I really got to sort of I then began to explore and learn and listen and watch and, and pay a little bit more attention and decided this guy sounds a lot like my mother in how he talks about things that she raised me to be about being an independent thinker, to, about um, the role that I see myself playing. I remember when I was uh, 16 or 17, my mom and we, there were several times when we had these moments where I wanted to know more about my story and I wanted to know more about uh, her story. Um, and I remember sitting down and asking her um, when my dad died why she never went on public assistance. And her response to me was, I didn't want the government to raise my child. And that wasn't a partisan point of view. That was the perspective of a mother who felt her obligation and responsibility to her children. And that she wasn't going to go rely on the cheese or the check. That she would make it work. And she did, on minimum wage, put me through Catholic grade school. And then when she got married, we had my, my, she adopted my sister Monica, who is now a uh, pediatrician, former wife of Mike Tyson. Um, yeah, I want to ask you about her. Her, her son is the you go ask about that. Her son is the former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland, and I like to tell people all that on minimum wage. So when Republicans, you know, get all upset about minimum wage, and I was like, no, I'm a minimum wage baby over here. It works, okay? It has a role and a place and a purpose. And so we need to respect that. But when I went to tell her in 76 that uh, I said, well, Mom, I decided I'm going to go and vote this year. I'm excited. And she says, great. I said, I decided I'm registering as a Republican. And she looked at me and she go, Lord, baby, why would you go and do that? <laughs> She's like, okay, all right. Whatever. <laughs> so what did you learn from Mary and Barry in that, that crowd? Well, they, you know, they taught me. You know what they taught me? About people. Politics at the end of the day is ultimately about you. What has happened to our politics, it has become about us. The political leadership. The politician. The organization. The process. The infrastructure. You want to understand why a Donald Trump and a Bernie Sanders resonates? Because for the first time in a generation, you have political leaderships who are speaking against that windstorm, who are speaking against that mindset. Whether you like it or not, whether you're up or down, doesn't matter. You need to understand, in my perspective, why voters feel and are responding the way they do. And it has, for me, goes back to the lesson I learned from... The, the former dashiki wearing, you know, uh, political activists 
who became the mayor of the District of Columbia. This was the guy, I remind you, who got caught smoking crack on, on a camera with a prostitute in a hotel in D.C. and six months later got reelected. Now, that's not a corruption of the political process. When you go and ask those voters who, why they voted for him, you know what they'll tell you? Because he helped my kid get a summer job. Because the mayor's office of fill in the blank was there for me when I couldn't pay that bill. Public service, community service, civic duty and responsibility has its rewards and its benefits, not in name identification, not in popularity, not in how much you're going to be able to make once you give that up. But every time you walk into a community hall and you can say to someone, I can help you with that problem, boom, that's the benefit of your being there. And a lot of our public officials have forgotten about that. And it's a yeah. lesson I took with me into the lieutenant governor's yeah. office no, I, when I served in that regard. Obviously, I, I, I agree with you. Do you think... Um, do you think most Republicans agree with you on this, that that's, that, that is what people in public life should be doing? It's a mixed bag. Some do, some don't. I, I had a candidate that I had sat down with in 2010 uh, when we were going around the country trying to figure out, okay, what we got here. We're going to go out and do this. And so we had all these candidates running. And I remember meeting with this one candidate who was running for office. And I sat down with him. I said, uh, so tell me about your campaign. What you doing? How's it going? Oh, yeah. And um, they were like, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm excited about this. I'm going to do this, 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 this. And he was going to the Senate. He was running for the Senate. I'm that, 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 that. So, oh, okay. I said, so how are you going to get all that done? You know, Harry Reid is the Senate majority leader. and means the Democrats run the Senate. And he just kind of looked at me, and I was like, well, you're going to have to go work with the Democrats. He said, like, I'm not going to Washington to work with Democrats. And I realized in that moment, no, we're not funding your campaign either. Because that's not what public service is supposed to be. Look, I can be partisan. I was a county chairman, state chairman, national chairman. I can get partisan with the best of me anytime, anywhere. You want to throw down like that? Let's go there. But when you are in that space where you're looking to take on the obligation of public service and duty, that's the water's edge. That's where you have to pull back on the partisanship and recognize, I got to get some good things done for the people who trust me enough to send me to the state capitol, to the county yeah, council, no, I, to Washington. So... I agree with this, and I, I want to get back to your story, um, but since we're on this point, um, in 2009, you, when you became the chair and President Obama became the president, yeah. um, <laughs> there, we got there uh, in a terrible time, as you can remember. You yeah. remember the, the Onion headline about oh. Obama, that a black man gets worst job in America? <laughs> uh, and because uh, they could have said that about becoming the chairman up, of the Republican <laughs> National Committee, I guess too. But um, yeah, you, and that you, night, and that night yeah. of the inauguration, we now know fifteen members of the House and, and Newt Gingrich, I guess, met to discuss how they could thwart the president's agenda president. in the middle of an economic crisis. How, how does that square with your view of these things? It doesn't. How'd that one term work out for you, fellas? I mean, you know, uh, it, it doesn't. It, it's, look, it, it's disappointing. Um, 
on on so many levels, and, and I'll, 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 <coughs> I'll go through a couple of them very quickly. So you set it up nicely. You have inauguration of the first African-American president of the United States. Boom. Excellent. And I remember doing a, a meeting. Uh, what did that mean to you, by the way? Oh, it was profoundly important. I, and I was just about to say, I was uh, on a stage at the NAACP convention the August before the election. Uh, I was asked to, to come and speak, and I did, because, you know, that's what you do. Right? So I'm then there's doing a little round. So it's me and like 11 like hardcore Ds, right? And I'm sitting there going, all right, so here it comes, boom, 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 boom. So you could tell that whole time that people were like wanting to lead up to the question about Barack Obama and they wanted to get my opinion on it. So they finally got to me and I said, well, let me tell you very, very honestly, I think this is a profoundly important moment for the country that as a black man, I'm extremely proud of what he's done to this point. And if he gets elected, I will be even more proud for him as president, as a black man, as a first black president. But between now and then, I'm going to do everything in my power to defeat him. Because it's not about the person, it's about the policy. And so it was, it was interesting to see people appreciate that honesty in that moment, because that's how I felt. And I, and I still look at Barack Obama. I had, had then and have now a real distaste for the birtherism discussion because that is nothing more than bullshit racism. Excuse my French. Because you cannot say to me that given the 400-plus year history of this country, that at the very moment that the country decides to elect the first black man president of the United States, you're going to ask for his papers? Seriously? Seriously. I can go all day long about what's wrong with Syria and economic policy and foreign policy with this administration. But I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here and say, you need to show me your papers first. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. And what's gotten lost... Do you have this discussion with Donald Trump? I've had this discussion with a whole lot of folks who don't listen, which is why the party has struggled. Look, the second part of that narrative of Barack Obama getting elected president, inheriting a country in an economic turmoil, was the first black chairman getting elected a week later to inherit a party in disarray and with a brand that, quite frankly, sucked. Right. Black man gets second worst job in America. Second worst job in America. (laughs) And so you, you're sitting there going, I've, there were a couple of times I'd like, let me call Barack and just say, brother, can we like get a drink? <laughs> Figure this out? But um, yeah, it's important to, to understand and contextualize what, what this meant for the country to have both of us serving at the same time. And I'm not equating myself to Barack. Please, right. don't no, even go there. But it, 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 it is... It is it is important to be the person who inherits the job. Now, look, I, I get the joke. <laughs> I'm not stupid. Okay, let's get the black man in here. We got this brother. Maybe he can deal with him. Um, I had someone come up to me and say after I got elected that uh, this is great. This is wonderful. I'm like, thank you. I said, now we can get blacks to join the party. I went, what, do I look like a Pied Piper to you? 
Do you think black folks are going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, oh, hell, they elected a black man chairman of the GOP? Let me go join. And that's the problem. They think it's that simple. This is a relationship that is etched in history. This is the political home of the black community, is the GOP. A lot of people don't like to hear that, but history is history. It is what it is. The fact that we walked away from that. Yeah, kind of community kind of got locked out of home about 50 years ago. Got locked out of the house 50 years ago. And then cemented the doors with the Southern strategy in 1968. So when I became chairman, if you want to know why I stood up in front of the press corps in D.C. and said that the Southern strategy is now dead, it is over, it's because I saw that in this moment... It was an opportunity to do what I thought was important. I like to call turning the elephant. And that is turning the elephant towards a different future in which we go back to those things and remember those things that made this party not just competitive politically, but made it something that had value to my community. And we tried for 18 months. It's hard to to turn elephants around. It really matters which end you start with. (laughs) It really does. You s- well, let's just go back to your story, and then we'll come back to where we are today sure. and, and Trump and the state of the party. And are so we going to talk about Trump at some point? Yeah. Yes. We, I, <laughs> yes. Think, I think they'll it's insist. Like, yes. Seems topical. Yeah. Uh, I, but the, I don't uh, see that much there, but okay, I'll follow your lead. <laughs> you ran for a lieutenant governor. You are chosen to run for lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting story about your experience uh, when you were running for lieutenant governor, and that was the editorial that was written in the Baltimore Sun. Yes. Uh, what, what did the Baltimore Sun say? So the weekend before the election, the, you know how newspapers go out and they put the editorials out about who they endorse. So my uh, running mate uh, was uh, then Congressman Bob Ehrlich. And so we were running. So, of course... We're being Republicans. We're running against Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, of course, the daughter of Bobby Kennedy, who was the sitting lieutenant governor with uh, Paris Glendening. And um, <laughs> so this weekend, they put out the endorsement of Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Okay, well, duh, hello, this is Marilyn, we get it. So then they, they uh, tear down Bob in his endorsement. A non-endorsement. He's not, you know, he's a Republican. That's enough. Then they get to me. And very short paragraph, which ended about why I was not qualified to be lieutenant governor of of the state. Now, let me spell out for you what the qualifications are to be (laughs) lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland. In the state constitution, it says, there shall be the office of lieutenant governor who shall serve at the pleasure of the governor, period. So not being qualified is really, you have to go out of your way not to be qualified. You've got to go out of your way not to be qualified for that job. So they write this editorial saying why I was not qualified and ended it by saying, the only thing that Michael Steele brings to the ticket is the color of his skin. Okay, now I just have one question for you. Wait a second, whose podcast is this? Right. uh, (laughs) If that had been written by Barack Obama, what do you think the response would have been? Yeah. No, that's an outrageous thing to say. That's why I bring it up. But this is my point. Not a peep. 
No one was outraged. No one complained. Well, you were outraged. I was. No, I I mean, I I find it outrageous, which is why I brought it up. Everyone else thought it was like, okay, this is part of what? Why are you so upset? Why are you making such a big deal of this? And it is what I, I try to say to people that being a black Republican, there's an automatic difference in how you're treated and perceived what they can say about you. There was a caricature of me on the web running for the U.S. Senate in 2006 with me in blackface, with big red lips and the sort of Al Jolson look. All right? There was, at that time, uh, two other gentlemen um, running in the state of Ohio for um, governor, running for uh, Senate in Pennsylvania, uh, African-Americans, the three of us were characterized by the Cosmopolitan, I forget the magazine, as the lawn jockeys of the GOP. This is acceptable conversation for a lot of folks in media and in politics when it comes to folks like me. Now, you can hate what I say. You can not like my political perspective. And I get that. I'm, I, like I said, let's go toe-to-toe and debate it. But then you cross that line that I think that editorial did, Listen, which I, to this day they have not apologized for. No, it's, it was, it's outrageous. That's why I brought it up. You ran for the U.S. Senate in 2006, yeah. and you lost a tough year. It's always a tough year for Republicans in... Uh, well, 06 was an ugly year. I mean, 06, in, uh, but 06 was, was a particularly hard Bush. year. They were fed up with the war. They were fed up with a lot of... Big things, the Republican base had, had gone away from the party, begun to move away. A lot of people talk about the Tea Party in 2009. Trust me, folks, the Tea Party began in 2004. Okay? The Tea Party began with Republican, base Republicans who had grown concerned about the level of government spending without accountability. The, the Terry Schiavo case, remember the Terry Schiavo case, the young woman on life support in Florida? where the Senate came back into session to pass a bill to force the family to keep this woman alive when the husband had made the very torturous and painful decision to let his wife find peace. Um, They had had enough of that. That had become the Republican Party. And a lot of the base folks didn't like it. You, You talked about race and Obama. You saw the crowds at some of these McCain-Palin rallies in 2008 uh, where, you know, I think John McCain's finest moment in 2008 was up in Minnesota when he stood up to uh, the woman in the crowd who said that she was frightened of Obama and that he wasn't an American. he wasn't American. He was a Muslim and all this crazy, yeah. And it was the finest moment by any presidential candidate, period. Yeah, it was great. It was great. He, He did... It was a really admirable thing that he did, but that it seems to me that that group of people that we saw there uh, were the people we saw in the summer of 2009 and uh, at some of these uh, uh, town hall meetings around health care and some of these other issues. Uh, and maybe they're the core of the group that we saw behind Trump in this uh, campaign but you, you were the chairman at the time. What was your observation of this? Well, my observation was that's not where I wanted to go. And I wanted to make it very clear to party leaders on the Hill, party leaders on K Street, um, that 
this chairmanship was not going to go down that road. When I got presented with talking points to go after Barack Obama on the birther issue, I said, hell no, I'm not doing that. I don't believe that. That's BS. That's not what the, well, let's go out and talk about health care. Let's talk about cap and trade, which was a big issue at the time. Let's go out and talk about immigration. Let's, there are a lot of things that we can be talking about. Let's stay you focused also, on you, you as a chairman, you uh, tried to enforce some party discipline about not just the birtherism, but other issues that you didn't want your candidates talking about, social issues that you thought. Absolutely. Look, I I understand the one thing, again, going back to some of the lessons I learned early on, I understand very much and can read, you know, the mood of people. People, if you just shut up and listen, they'll tell you what they think and what they feel. And where the party was then and where I believe the party is now is not, look, I'm a pro-life Catholic, and I think you understand why, um, as an adopted child. So I know the choice my mother could have made, and I know the choice that she did. So when I got into trouble, one of the first things I got in trouble for as chairman was doing an interview with D.L. Hughley, Hughley, who's a buddy. He had a radio show at the time. I came on, he asked me about the question, and I did a GQ interview in which I said, you know, in it, when I was asked, does a woman have a right to choose? And I said, absolutely, she does. And everyone, oh, my God, what do you mean? No, what? That's, I was like, yeah, that's... dude, come on, seriously, are you telling me? God gave us the one gift above all gifts, free will. And so you can, there's not a law on this planet, period, that you could write where you don't have a choice. Don't believe me? Check the Ten Commandments. How many of those have you broken just getting here today? (laughs) All right? People have a choice. People have a choice. And this idea that government or individuals or institutions can change that and corral that is just mindless BS. It doesn't work. What you need to do, and as I said to I gave a speech in Indiana at a pro-life convention. I said, what this conversation needs to be about showing light, not darkness. Not, not criminalizing and penalizing and beating up these women who are making a very difficult decision. My mother had a choice. She made, in my view, the right choice. But I cannot sit here and deny that that choice didn't exist. And so we get caught up in semantics and words and all this crazy. And so when I would go into these meetings, literally, folks, I had a meeting one morning in Florida. To this day, I remember this. In the morning, I met with uh, a group of strong conservatives like myself. We were sitting down at the table. (laughs) And they said to me, so as a new chairman, I'm on the job like six weeks. They go, so... We really are excited about you being chairman, and we hope that you can, you know, push the, you know, socialism, you know, we're, you know pro-life, you know, against gay marriage, da da da, the whole thing, right? The whole social package. I was like, oh, okay, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Literally, two hours later, in a meeting in the same building with a group of of Republicans, businessmen, cross section of folks. Chairman, we're really excited you're chairman, and we're looking forward to your leadership. You know, we just want to say to you, the less time you spend on the social issues, the better. (laughs) I'm sitting there going, what party am I in? You guys don't even talk to each other. You have no clue. The folks in the morning just told me to spend all my time on that. You're telling me to spend no time on that. So at that point, I decided, you know what, we're just going to focus on policy. Yeah. 
I don't think it's gotten better, by the way, since then. <laughs> no. So. No, that's why the health care debate for me was such an exciting debate. It really was, because it was a chance where I could draw contrast. When Barack Obama got elected, I remember writing an op-ed in which I said, for the first time now in a long time, we can have an ideological discussion about policy, because you're going to be on that side, I'm going to be on this side, now we can work this out. And, and it didn't play out that way, but that's how I saw it. And that's kind of the energy I brought into the job. Um, and yeah, like I said, I can be partisan when I need to. My bus tour, fire Pelosi. Yeah, I was all about firing Pelosi. Yeah, I wanted to take back the Congress. That's the politics. My job as national chairman is to win elections, raise money. Um, but I also recognize the role that I had absent a president, absent a speaker of the House, um, that I could play a role in some policy. So, yeah, I spoke out against the war, uh, didn't set well with the neocons. I made the comment. This was funny, just real quick, and I know you, I don't want to take too much time on this. No, that's okay. But I made a statement. A candidate at an event in New Hampshire, in New England, asked me about the war. And he was running and said, well, How do I answer the question? I said, First off, you always answer honestly to the voters. You tell them what you think, what you feel, how you perceive this. So they understand if that's worth the investment. He says, so what do you, how would you answer the war? I said, well, if you're asking me, what I would say to them is that uh, this, is, this is an unnecessary fight. Uh, we've spent a lot of money. We've lost a lot of lives. And no one can answer the question why. I said, you're going to go to Congress and they're going to ask you to vote on the question why. And you don't have an answer for that. So you've got to be honest. And um, I think that, you know, that's when I made the comment about this being Obama's war. And the reason I said that, and of course it got all screwed up, because the president had recently at that time talked about a double down where he was going to take $500 billion or whatever amount and put into a war. He was going to elevate uh, the presence in the war. So that's why I said the president yeah. is making a choice now to, to engage in Afghanistan in a way that I think we need to be concerned about. I got crucified that weekend. I had senators calling me, it, Bill Crystal, everybody t- ripped me a new one on Fox News, calling for my resignation, telling me to be fired. I was dead wrong, I don't know what I was talking about. I went into a meeting that next week in which I was berated by Senate uh, members telling me that I didn't know anything about policy and I should stay the politics. And I looked at them and said, well, clearly you don't either, so that's the problem. Uh, They didn't like me much. But what is funny about that is a year later, everyone was in the same corner I was in about Afghanistan. So, um, you know, it's just a matter of listening to the people and they'll tell you where they they want to go. The... uh yeah, I don't want to get into a discussion on Afghanistan because I was there when those decisions I were know, made. So, I know. You know, it was sort of tied to a plan to get uh, troops no, I, out of there, which, which he that. did. I just didn't but, think we needed to be there because there yeah. was no rationale for No, it. no. But, but um, I want to ask you, you, you won 63 seats in the House. It was the biggest win for a party since, I think, 1938. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt, I think, lost... I forget what the number is. I think it was 73 or 78. Yeah. I always like, because well, I was in the White House at the time, I always like to cite the fact that Roosevelt did worse than we did. <laughs> uh, That's good. I took comfort in that. <laughs> That's good. 
Um, and, and then you were fired. Yeah. Success. <laughs> That's how we define it in America. Um, look, it is what it is. That's politics. I get it. Uh, I watched my, my buddy Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, go through it this year. And I hear the groans uh, in the room. I get it. But, folks, you, unless you have the job, unless you're making the decision, unless you know all the facts, um, trust me, it ain't, it ain't as easy as a groan. Um, and it's, it's a hard space to be in. Doubly hard for her because she has the White House. She has a president of the United States who is the titular head of the party, directing and orchestrating and demanding oftentimes out of the West Wing, not the president per se, but you know how that works, uh, the political shop there wanting certain things to go a certain way. That is not a tough, that is not an easy position to be in. So for, for me, without freed of that, um, I had to deal with a majority leader, a minority leader in the Senate um, and a minority leader in the House who then became majority leader uh, later. Uh, Boehner and McConnell. Boehner, Boehner and company. But the, the, goal, the goal for me was a very simple one, um, was to build a grassroots network across the country around a conversation about the direction of the country, uh, who we are as Republicans, what does that mean, uh, who we are as a nation, uh, to take uh, and dissect the policies that have been put forth by the president. Uh, at that time, the majority, the big policy was health care, uh, to look at the state of the economy, to focus the conversation around points that could be articulated and argued at the grassroots by my candidates, to groom them, to help them. We built a network. The reason we were able to win those uh, 63 seats in the House um, was we built a grassroots network. And you know where I learned to do that? From Barack Obama. Because I watched what he did. I wish we hadn't taught you that. You you know, but you know who else? But let me Uh, tell you who else I would give props to. We, for the first time in our history as a national party, executed a 50-state strategy. And I thank Howard Dean for that. Yeah. No, no. And he and I, look, when we do panels together, I say, yeah, we both got fired for the job. But those, that's the great, that harkened me back to Marion Barry. But you did the, but you, but, you know, as we said a couple of minutes ago, you did a very smart thing because you submerged those issues that were divisive and you rallied around issues that Republicans could unite around. So in 2012, Mitt Romney lost uh, and uh, your successor, Reince Priebus, paneled a commission. And that commission reported back and said, we, if we're going to win national elections, we have to build a party that has greater appeal to minority voters, especially Hispanics, but all minority voters, yeah. to young people and to women. And so how's, the, how's that project going? <laughs> I don't know, baby. I'm not chairman, so that's not my problem. <laughs> No, now you're, you're a commentator for MSNBC, so you're completely free to speak your Absolutely. mind. No, but here's how it's going. It's going nowhere, and here's why. It's just very honestly. I've said this to Ryan, and so I'm not saying anything out of school. It was a smart document. I wouldn't have called it an autopsy, but it's a smart document. Um, it laid out fundamentally what the party needed to do. The problem is, when you get an asymmetrical candidate who walks onto the national stage, who on the first day he announces for president, <laughs> kind of throws all of that up in the air. 
Actually, excuse me, come over here. Let's have a sit down. You see this document? That's what we are. That's what we're doing. You're not on this page, you have a problem. Now, a lot of people think that you can't do that as national chairman. Yes, you can. You can. In fact, it's, in, it's, it's expected of you to do that, to bring that in. Look, I had a candidate who ran for office who made the public announcement that she was not a witch in 2010. <laughs> All right? Remember that one? So I'm like, okay. Let's work with that. We don't need to talk about that anymore. How about we talk about what's happening in Delaware? Yeah. You, got, you, you do. You just can't leave it out there. So you leave it out there, and it gets stepped on, trampled, and, and not worth the papers written on. Donald Trump, just to finish off, to have this discussion we're going to have. Yeah. When you heard him uh, say what he said about, uh, first of all, the birtherism the other day after five years saying that One he, word. Right? Why? Why? I know why, politically why. They wanted to get in front of the debate next week because they know that's going to be a question. So they wanted to, okay, let's work this out now. I understand that. I'm kind of asking about the previous five years, and do you think that's a disqualifying? At this point, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to judge what's disqualifying for him or her or whatever. They're going to make up their mind. In my view, uh, as I said earlier on, uh, I thought it was a nonsensical discussion. I thought it was a discussion that was based on something that was race-based. I thought it was something that I found offensive uh, as an African-American. And then and now, I, I still say, why are we having this discussion? But let me also say this. One of the more disappointing moments for me for, in Barack Obama's presidency beyond policy was the day he stood up and produced his birth certificate. Because to me, I found that to be insulting. Because it undermined him as a black man. It undermined his presidency. And my attitude was then, as it is now, my finger, yeah. the one that's broken. Yes. That would have been the only public comment I would ever have made. In fairness, on I think subject. I, in fairness, I think he tried that. He did. He did. But I would have stuck to it. There yeah. was in my again, my view, no reason for him to do that. None. No matter the political climate, no matter whatever, you don't produce the paper. In What's, that situation you just don't in my view. Yeah. Some people may disagree or not. I don't really care, but that's what do you what, what's, the, what's the what's the future of the uh, the Republican Party now with Trump if he wins and if he loses? Uh, okay, so if, he's, if he wins, uh, there will be an internal combustion of magnitude we haven't seen, largely because you're going to have a lot of people who've been against him um, and who have been fighting against that from happening, having to confront the reality that it has now happened. And that he is the one who is controlling, in many cases, their livelihood. Um, That's going to be a problem. Um, And if he loses, there will be a combustion unlike anything you've ever seen. (laughs) 
So it just seems like the party they're going to have to deal with. Look, here's the underlying thing that I I've seen since I was a county chairman. We have been in slow walking in this space, David, since Ronald Reagan left office. We do not know, we do not recognize who that man was anymore. Ronald Reagan, if he were a candidate running for any office today, would not win a Republican primary. Right. Because the things that he would espouse, the policies, the values, the principles that he would lay out there would be rejected. This is the, the governor, the president who raised taxes. Why? Because it was required in that moment in time to save a state, to save a nation from economic disaster. He, he signed off on, supported an immigration policy. Why? That opened up the borders, that, that, that gave what amnesty. What would be called amnesty. Amnesty. By... Why? Because it was the right thing to do at that time to, to settle the question for then, what, nine million or so uh, immigrants here in the country. He hearkened back to the traditional viewpoint of the Republican Party, which has always been focused on the one thing. Sorry, folks, this is not. I, this is really weird for me. Um, always been focused on the one thing that has that's been about assimilation. That is the history of our party. We've always been the party that's talked about that in the past. We've always brought that. We recognize the value of that lady in the harbor, okay, as a principle, as an ideal. He understood that. But today, that would not play. So this battle, this consternation, this churning that you see inside the party uh, has been ongoing since he left. It will go on until it's resolved. You've heard it. You've heard the conversation. Oh, we didn't elect, we didn't nominate a, Repo- a conservative. That's why we lost. Right. You know, so they trashed John McCain. They trashed Mitt Romney. They trashed Bob Dole. See, I think the problem is that there's no resolution here because neither the conservatives nor the center-right sort of corporate-oriented Republicans, business-oriented Republicans, claim Donald Trump. So if he loses, each is going to blame the other for what happened. The Trump supporters will say, you didn't support him. That's why we lost. That's a fight. The, the corporate class will say, God, why did we nominate him? That's why we lost. Uh, the Hill and the, and the political class will say the same. The, the activists uh, will be uh, further dismayed and, dis- and, and frustrated. So, yeah, I think that there's going to be a, a little bit of uh, dancing to do um, inside the party. But having said that, Shall I posit, my friend, that you too, on the Democratic side, have a little dancing that you will need to do uh, in future years? So let us not think that this flows only in one direction. Because the last time I checked, Bernie Sanders was not going away. His millennial voters are pissed. They have... They have transformed the party internally, operationally, through its platform. That is not Hillary Clinton's platform. As much as people want to live in that denial, it is not. I love it when I hear her say, I'm a progressive who likes to get things done. Yeah, right, sure. All right? You adopted the entire Bush foreign policy. How progressive is that? You've got Republicans, you've got neocon Republicans signing, can't sign the letter fast enough endorsing you and claiming they're going to vote for you. What do you think that millennial, next generation 
Bernie Sanders voter sitting there having watched their father die in, in, in Iraq or their brother killed or dealing with all of that now sit here and have her go off and talk about being the progressive who gets things done and this is the agenda she's adopting? Trust me, more fun to come. I, uh, I would bring Bernie Sanders here to uh, offer rebuttal. He was our first guest, by the way, on the Axe Files, uh, but he's out campaigning for Hillary Clinton now. So, Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for bringing that up. I saw the videotape of that campaigning, and if the brother could get a little bit excited about it, maybe I'd believe him. Before we end... Before we end, I just want to thank. I want to. Oh, he's campaigning. Before we end, get your own podcast. Before, (laughs) before we end, I just want to thank everyone at WBEZ who helped make this event possible. Tyler Green, Tyler Green produced tonight's show. Thanks also to Ben Calhoun and Joel Meyer from WBEZ's programming team for their help, and to Sarah Lou for engineering and all the WBEZ volunteers. Uh, now I'm supposed to say finally thanks to you, uh, to the City Winery, for hosting us this evening, which I do. Great but I also wine. want to thank all of you in the audience for being thank here you. with us tonight. And Michael Steele, thanks for, uh, thank for being you, here, for being a, a, a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University Amen. of Chicago. The place to be. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.